Welcome to the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast, where we discuss topics related to sterile and non-sterile compounding pharmacy in an effort to promote compliance and increase quality. The Pharmacy Inspection Podcast is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, delivering quality and meaningful conversations and discussions about our pharmacy industry and the critical role pharmacists play in our healthcare systems. Learn more at PharmacyPodcast.com. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Prince and Seth DePasquale. Hello to all of our compounding friends and colleagues, and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast. We thought that this was going to be the dawn of a new era for us because we went live yesterday, and unfortunately with new technology, there were hiccups and there was some sound quality issues, but there was still a lot of great information that was shared. So we wanted to circle back, do a little bit of editing, and discuss the new proposed USP 797 chapter. The last time we saw this chapter was in September of 2015 thereabouts and there were so many comments back to the USP expert committee they ended up having to hire people to go through all the comments the good news is is they took a lot of that into account and so that's why we're here today we're here with our good friend John Pritchett from the ACHC to discuss his thoughts and some of the high points that he saw in the chapter this will be a continuing ongoing conversation but let's jump in and let our friend John give us some of his thoughts on the new proposed chapter the chapter, this version of it, it points pharmacies, um, or I, I should rephrase that, it, um, it's where I know us at PCAP have been pointing pharmacies for quite some time. Uh, there's a lot of things in current 797 that are, uh, you know, they're either misunderstood, they're misinterpreted, there's references used that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're buried down in footnotes. Uh, or they're, they're way back in the back in some of the appendices and things like that. And, you know, I've been really happy that the, the chapter came out and uh, made it much more readable, more understandable, pointed out better where those things came from. Uh, using CETA, for example, uh, that's just blatantly put in there. It's not very important. So, um, you know, I, I have to applaud USP for that. It's, it's creating a, a much better document. And then I'm also real happy that a lot of the stakeholder comments were taken into account. Um, I know uh, something that Seth wanted to talk about was some of the differences between the uh, the previous draft that was out there and the current one. And I, and I have to say they're huge. I mean, there's some pretty significant things in there, uh, things like training, things like Bible air sampling that um, hold back very much from from the first draft. Some of those things that concern pharmacies, both from a, a workflow perspective and a financial perspective. So um, I'll be glad to, to get to those in a minute. Uh, Seth, are you back on with us? Yeah, I was just texting with him and he said that he thought his mic was on mute. So just so you know, Seth is actually, he's actually on vacation this week and he's trying to get connectivity, so he may be in and out. But John, go ahead and feel free to go ahead and jump in and, 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 and carry your thoughts downstream. Oh man, this is, 
This is not how it was supposed to go. But, right? Hey, welcome to the John Show, the John Pritchett Show. This is what it's all about today. It's all about you. We appreciate you joining us. So, like I said, carry it on downstream. All right, well, I'm going to go into um, a couple of things that Seth had actually pointed out. So, I know, let's do this. Actually, guys, listening, if you're uh, doing a live podcast and paying attention, hopefully you've got a copy of this already. So, first things first, if you have not downloaded the new chapter, taken a look at it, I want you to do that. So, um, you can go to USP's website and, uh, first off, get signed up. They do have a link available where you can get locked in for uh, you know, updates on the chapter. Um, you know, if you're part of the, the PCAP family, you should have access to USP standards. If you're not a PCAP or credit, you may not have that yet. Um, go on and, and get the chapter. Uh, it's something that I heard mentioned, I Seth actually might be on one of the last couple of podcasts, that is uh, if he's looking for something with USP, a lot of times he'll, he'll Google it and find something. And you know, I, I, I cringed a little bit when I heard that because uh, USP does make changes. And uh, you know, there's different versions of them out there. And a lot of times the stuff you find online is something that's posted and it's it's not up to date anymore. So uh, make sure you get the, the current version of this and take a look at it. And I think with what we've seen with this revision, I, I mentioned this earlier, but it seems like USP took a lot of the comments and took them to heart. So just so that you guys are familiar, um, when you get the, the revision, it'll actually come with each line number. And what you have the ability to do is go and go by the numbers and make comments back to USP and they actually do read all those. Uh, my understanding was that USP actually had to hire two additional staff people uh, to read the, the many, many comments that you guys put out there. So, um, and again, the great news is they were read and um, they were put into play in a lot of situations. So, I'll try to hit on some of those now. Hopefully, Seth will be able to get back on and join me, but if not, we'll just uh, kind of come through and, and look at them. Yeah, thanks. And uh, sorry about all the technical issues from yesterday, but uh, let's let's do this. Let's get back on track. So first thing you notice uh, it, it, when you look at the chapter is that there's new risk categories. And this was this isn't anything different necessarily from the last revision from 2015. Um, it was sort of introduced that rather than having risk levels like low, medium, and high, we now have risk categories that are just category one and category two. And they're not defined necessarily by the level of risk. Um, it's primarily, to quote the chapter, primarily based on the conditions under which they are made, the probability for microbial growth, and the time period within which they must be used. So if we're doing... Uh, for example, a category one, you actually, you, you technically don't even need to have a clean room. Um, you, you have to have a, a, some kind of primary engineering control, um, but not, not a whole clean room. But keep in mind that if you're going to uh, claim this category one, it comes with beyond use dates as well. So, it's connecting the chapter is you know still connecting the risk of how you're compounding it with the beyond use date. So 
I think that's that's really important. I, I have to be honest. I, I don't like the um, the idea of taking the risk out of it just in the name. <laughs> Maybe that's just uh, semantics, but I, I like the idea of having low, medium, and high risk categories. Um, but that is still very much entrenched. Um, the idea of risk is still at the center of all this. It, it, they literally just took uh, risk out of the name of the low, medium, high, and high, and, and, and sort of simplified it a little bit. So, um, yeah, John, let's talk about beyond use dates. I mentioned earlier that things that are done in a segregated compounding area, this category one of sterile compounding, um, those get a, a 24-hour refrigerated or 12-hour or room temp BUD. And, and that, that's pretty, pretty cut and dry and straightforward. Um, you know, and that's, that's usually used in a situation where you're going to have relatively fast administration. So a lot of times that's going to be something like, you know, a, an ambulatory infusion center, some sort of physician, uh, dispensing suite where you're doing everything on site. So that, that'll work in those situations. But, you know, for most of the pharmacies that, that I know I work with through our accreditation programs, um, you're dealing with, with outpatient type stuff. You're dealing with either home infusion type things, you might be doing high risk compounding where you're, you're making things for, for people and animals. And uh, man, so you're gonna fall in that, that uh, category two area. And so looking at the original table, so when I say table 12, if you've got the, um, the document open to 797, this is line 1672 is where this begins. So. The first revision of this chapter for setting BUDs gave us a huge table that you went by, and it, it broke things down by how they were prepared, whether it was aseptic or terminal sterilization. Um, it went through whether you had a sterility test done. It went through whether you had a preservative added. It went through um, your, your, start, your starting components, whether they were sterile or non-sterile, um, and it one, it created a rubric that was fairly confusing, and two, most compounders found it fairly limiting. Um, in, in current 797 today, we have our, our beyond use dates for low, medium, and high-risk applications, and then there's steps that we can go through to extend the beyond use date. So um, that, that'll include sterility testing, uh, maybe endotoxin, depending on the size of the batch, and then a justification for that longer beyond use date. In the first re uh, revision of 797, we had um, <coughs> sorry, we had a uh, a change there of maximum beyond use dates. So in most situations, I, I think the longest BUD you could get on anything was at a frozen temperature of 45 days, um, and then in a lot of cases it was 28 to 42 days, depending on sterility testing and that sort of thing. But it looked like it was going to make larger scale production of sterile compounds very difficult. And um, I can say that with this revision, it's been peeled back a bit. We still have the same kind of format where um, we look at aseptically prepared CSPs, we look at terminally sterilized CSPs. We don't, we don't jump through quite so many things. So just to, to give you an idea, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I always think about, you know, what are the common compounds that our, our guys are working with? So let's just use Trimix as an example. A lot of you guys doing high-risk compound, and you're working with something like this. So the way you walk through that is 
Um, is it aseptically prepared or is it terminally sterilized? And, and by the way, terminally sterilized means you're killing it in the final container. So filtration is an aseptic preparation. It's not terminal sterilization. Um, but that would be an aseptically prepared product. And then we ask ourselves the question, is sterility testing performed in past? If we said no, and you did no sterility testing, um, and we had a non-sterile starting component, we'd give ourselves four days refrigerated on that. However, if we are doing sterility testing um, and refrigerated, we could get a 45-day beyond use date and freezer actually 60 days. So um, we're expanded out a little bit with that. So, um, you know, I'm not going to delve into that a whole lot more, but that was something that, um, you know, it's certainly a relief from where we were before. And again, I, I know a lot of you hear that, and that's very different than what you're doing today. So um, again, go through the process. You know, we've seen that it that it does work in comments are, are taken in. So um, that'd be something I'd certainly take a, a close look at and uh, you know, make your comments known to USP and, and don't just rely on you know, some of your, your trade organizations to do that. Make sure you do that on your own. A uh, couple of other things on there. So um, let's get into, I'm just flipping through my notes here. Um, training and competency. So something that I like about the way this is written is there's a lot of confusion out there about training and competency. Uh, I can tell when we run statistics on uh, our PCAB surveys, what do we usually run into issues with? And typically that's in the top two or three items. And usually it's a function of one, people don't understand that there's a difference between training and competency assessment. Um, and then it's honestly, when you read the chapter, the current 797, it's a little bit difficult to figure out what are the, the various assessments I need to do and, and when do I need to do them. And I think this version um, really explains that a lot better. You know, it, it, uh, it kind of defines things like glove fingertip testing. When does it need to occur? So you have like your initial um, gowning and gloving sampling you do, then you have your sampling after media fill, and it, it just gives much more granular information of of what that looks like um, and uh, and what you should see with it. So I, I applaud the uh, folks over at USP. Another thing that I found interesting is the area where hand washing occurs um, is not spelled out in this chapter. So um, right now we, we talk about doing it in the ante room. And I can tell you again, as, as we've done surveys, um, not every pharmacy is constructed the same. And sometimes getting a sink in an ante room can be difficult. Can we run water, water lines and drains? Uh, do we even want a sink in there? Do we have another space in the pharmacy? I mean, I find it interesting that in, in GMP land, very rarely is hand washing ever done in the ante room. Typically, it's done in a, in its own dedicated space. So that, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, that is definitely one of the points that the FDA does not like. They do not like to see sinks inside of an ante room. And then oftentimes, if you think about a modular clean room, it's positioned typically right in the middle of a space, right? You don't want to put a clean room up against an exterior wall because then you got to deal with all the, the heat and the moisture. And if it's in the middle, then if you've got a drain, then you've got to come in and you've got to trench out that concrete. So there's always that that sink, just to, to your point, the sink is always the huge caveat. And then if it is a very small ante room at some of the smaller community pharmacies, 
you can't get it, uh, you know, three feet away and then away from another door. So there's just, there's so many variables as it relates to the sink. Uh, but I found it interesting that they actually said that they don't want it next to a primary engineering control. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, how, what does that mean? Because at first that was confusing to me. And, and I get it, if they're talking about a segregated compound area, I get what they're saying there, that they don't want the sink inside of that line of demarcation or that demarcated area. I get all, get all that. But the way that it read initially to me was very confusing, saying, okay, you don't want to sink next to a primary engineering control. Yeah, well, we get that. And I guess maybe they're assuming that if somebody's doing like pre-sterilization weighing or something and there's a, a hood beside it. I mean, I kind of get it, but it just, to me, it was a little bit ambiguous. I think for me, the whole sink in the anterior room, that comes down to just, you know, some basic microbiology. Um, the basis for, for life is, uh, is, is water and, and some uh, nutrients, of course. But, you know, water is a big thing there. And uh, having that a water source in the clean room itself is just uh, honestly it's it is a source of contamination, which is the biggest reason why G in GMP land, as John put it, um, it's it's not in there, and they they absolutely frown upon that. You know it's you know there's there's a few things that you, you if you're if you have a contaminated product that you're going to look to. Um, Water uh, could be one of those things, especially given uh, what contamination you're actually looking at. Is this a, a gram negative? Um, you know, the other things you, you'd look at your environment, materials, the the gowning procedures. There's a, there's a litany of other other things, but you know, to start out with a sink in your clean room uh, in the ante room where you're gowning, uh, it just generally is not a great idea. I think where they're headed, and this is just me thinking out loud, so I, I could be wrong about this, but it's wanting pharmacies to validate their own processes. You know, it's, it's not, let's prescribe for you one method, and then you've got to figure out how to you know, fit it into this box. It's more, you come up with your method, and you validate that. And this is something we, we talk with, with pharmacies about a lot, too, is um, you know, show us that that process works. You have the ability. I mean, we do this, you know, initial gloving and garbing competency on our sterile compounders really once um, going by current chapter. And we, we don't necessarily have to repeat that. And that's something that you know, a, a glove fingertip test doesn't take a lot of effort. It doesn't cost a lot to do. And um, that's something you can use to validate your process and show data. Of. This person can get into this room. We have this kind of data to back it up. And I think that's really what they're trying to steer people towards is really validate that process. So um, again, I, I think that was a good thing and a, and a nice change. Um, kind of going along that line too, just you know, something I made a note on is there's been a lot of confusion about what's the proper way to gown if you're using an isolator. So a, a, a containment aseptic ace isolator or, or a, uh, you know, a khaki, the kind that's used for, for hazardous drugs, but it goes granularity on the, the gloving for that. So it talks about using a disposable glove inside the gauntlet and then a sterile glove over the gauntlet glove. So that's, that's always been a, a point of contention for a lot of pharmacies. Now we've got a little more guidance on that to, uh, to point it out. Yeah, just to back up a little bit, and across the board, no matter what gowning or, or risk level we're talking about, you're going to want want to redo competencies every six months. 
And uh, there is one other thing I wanted to, to mention there is that they uh, made a, a very specific thing in terms of drawing your hands, that there's no hand dryer in any of the language whatsoever, because just generally speaking, again, a hand dryer, if you think about it, it's blowing uh, high-velocity air that um, should be HEPA filtered if it, if it actually is in the clean room, but um, it's blowing air out. It's going to be um, stirring up a whole bunch of, of particulate that's on the floor. And just, it's again, sort of like the sink, just not a good idea. So anyone with hand dryers in your clean rooms, please get them out. Use low linting wipes to to dry, and uh, you know I suppose the very best thing to do would be would be air dry, drip dry. Um, but yeah, the, <laughs> um, that would take way too long. Um, so the next best thing would be to use some low linting uh, wipes. Uh, they're not required to be sterile wipes. Uh, just to throw that out there, that would probably be more of a along the lines of a best practice. But but yeah, let's jump into one other thing. That's just honestly sort of a side note that I have picked up on over the last few revisions is the idea of having guidance documents uh, from outside trade organizations dictating the uh, testing requirements for our clean rooms. So uh, there's this organization, CETA, that is a trade organization that has developed these guidance documents that really detail which tests need to be done to certify your clean room. And if you look at those guidance documents, what they have done is just taken um, a whole bunch of other documents from uh, ISO, the FDA, IEST, and, and compiled a lot of that information together in one nice, neat little document. I, I it's, it, and this is just my opinion, but I, I feel like we need to USP should maybe even just create a separate chapter that that talks about the testing requirements for a clean room. Um, I don't know, whatever, uh, whatever chapter number is available. And just uh, we need to standardize the reporting form um, for testing requirements. I, I, this is another thing that is a big bone that I have to pick is that like I feel like a lot of pharmacies um, – don't really look at that report. Um, it's it's not standardized across the board. You you know you have one organization or one company. I mean, come in, test your clean room, and it'll look like this. Um, and then another company may come in six months later, and then it looks completely different. And you're looking for oh, where is this information? And you really have to kind of pick pick uh, pieces out of it. And I, I, I do have a have an issue with that because it, it makes the whole certification process a little confusing to, to pharmacists. If there was some pharmacist input on, on some of this stuff, um, maybe some of that confusion would be taken out of the picture. Um, I, I feel like we, we, uh, we do need to be educated in, in this stuff, how the clean room works, what is exactly tested, why are those tests actually important? Like, what what is a, a a HEPA filter leak test? What what do you have to do to do that? And what and if it passes, what does that mean? Like, uh, great, all right, we got a, a green checkbox and uh, and we're good to go for another six months. But what does that stuff actually mean? 
Um, so I implore um, USP to think about having this done in-house rather than having uh, an outside organization dictated for us. Um, one thing that I am very happy about, though, is the term highly pathogenic organism has been taken out of the uh, out of the standard and this comes down to uh, a couple things so they in previous uh, revisions they had talked about these highly pathogenic bacteria that if we're infected with them can be very problematic and that and that's true but if you if you think about this take this one step further and who is usually getting injections um, of some sort? It's, it's usually, uh, you know, I, I guess it could be anybody, um, but your, your typical hospital population may be the very young or very old, the, the immunocompromised patients. And whether you're taking a healthy person or a not healthy person, if you're taking some kind of foreign substance of any kind, it doesn't even necessarily have to be bacteria, that can be extremely problematic. Uh, it, it really depends on where you're injecting it, I suppose, um, that how problematic it would be. Obviously, from, from 2012, we, we saw with the NECC thing that fungal meningitis can obviously be, be really bad. But it, substitute the fungus, the fungi out, out of that and put in some other bacteria, it, it still would have been an extremely bad uh, event for all that to have, occur, have occurred because you're injecting into a space that doesn't really have any, any immune system to speak of. So, you know, the, the highly pathogenic organism thing uh, has been, uh, people have educated me on it, to be honest with you, and, uh, microbiologists that, that have been in this business for 45 years, and, and they're like, that doesn't really matter. Um, so I, I, I really applaud um, them rethinking that, that terminology, because it, it does it, it it makes it a little confusing, um, and it makes us think that all right, well, if we just take care of these highly pathogenic bacteria, then we're all set, right? Good to go. No, the the overall goal of your clean room is to keep contamination out. It's 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 all about contamination control, and uh, it doesn't really matter what bacteria is in there. It just shouldn't shouldn't be in there. But that being said. Let's not go completely overboard. If people are involved in the compounding procedures, there's going to be bacteria. That's just uh, unfortunately the way it is. It's how, how things work. Um, we are the biggest contaminating um, factor in this whole equation. So you're going to have bacteria. You want to, the goal is to limit that bacteria. Again, to, to say contamination control. And speaking of bacteria, um, let's move on to the action levels. Uh, USP has very clearly defined and taken some ambiguous language out of, uh, out of the chapter. They've clearly defined action levels for both surface and air sampling. And um, there's not enough being said about looking at these terms in, in terms of risk. Uh, depending on the area being sampled, how much does it matter whether there's a CFU in that location? So, you know, if we're talking about our ISO 5 environment, USP says that it should be limited to no more than one CFU when we're talking about viable 
airborne particle sampling. Um, if we're talking about the ISO 7, um, no more than greater than 10, and uh, ISO 8, no more than 100. Um, if, if you're exceeding those levels, uh, one for one CFU for five, 10 CFU for seven, and 100 for CFU for eight, you want to, you need to remediate that in some way. You need to have a, an action plan in place um, based on, you know, looking at identifying the bacteria and then taking the, uh, the proper steps basically to, to remediate that issue. Um, and there's a whole, uh, there's a whole way of going about that. And it, you know, I, I really think it begins with identification of down to the genus. Um, you can then figure out maybe the source of that bacteria. Maybe it's, maybe it's a people, a staph, um, staphylococcus. And then you would look at maybe your, your gowning procedures. Um, if it's a, a gram negative, you know, maybe that's a water uh, a water source bacteria, and you'd look at you know what what water sources are we bringing in here, um, so on and on and on with that. So I, I think that I, I really like the idea that they have clearly put in place. Uh, these are your action levels for your surfaces and your your air sampling, and you need to remediate this if if that is an issue. And, and again, it goes back to contamination control. Um, I do think, however, though, that all of this needs to be looked at in terms of risk. And I, I, I sort of said that at the beginning of this, in that, all right, if, if we have six locations that we're uh, doing viable sampling, um, and there's one in, in the corner of your, of your buffer room, and uh, you've exceeded that, that level, um, is that the end of the world uh, in your ISO 7 in the corner away from your PEC, your primary engineering control? Is that the end of the world? Um, it depends. <laughs> uh, I, I know people don't really like that answer, but it really does. And, and that's where we as pharmacists, I feel like we have to almost step up our game in terms of uh, our microbiology um, knowledge and uh, really just kind of brush up on some of the basics. It, it, it depends. You know, if, if you have, um, it depends on the location, how, the proximity of, of that bacteria to your, your product and your inner processes, your preparations. Um, how close is it to, to that area? Um, certainly, you do not want any bacteria in your ISO 5, your, your primary engineering control, because that's the closest you can get to your, your preparations. One other thing, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pass this over to John, that I, I want to talk about is the uh, cleaning schedules. Um, I've been talking all about um, contamination control, and part of that control is uh, cleaning and dis disinfecting your your controlled areas so they have a very nice table that details uh, the minimum frequency for cleaning and disinfection of surfaces and applying sporocytals and classified areas and within the perimeter of the SCA so it really details exactly what they're looking for what they want you to use um, and and how often they want you to do it so in your PEC, of course, you're going to be disinfecting that on a daily basis um, when you're when it's in use. 
uh, surfaces of the sink, pass-throughs, work surfaces outside the PC, and floors, those are all going to be cleaned daily. Um, and that makes, honestly, that makes a lot of sense because all the flat surfaces that we're talking about, all the horizontal surfaces in your clean room, what's going on there? Well, the whole purpose of the clean room is to, you have fans above with HEPA filtered air coming down, and it's pushing the particulate down onto the ground, hopefully, but it's also going to lay some of this uh, particulate on surfaces. Any horizontal surface in your clean room potentially is going to have some kind of contaminant on it. So to clean that daily, all those horizontal surfaces, that makes sense. You know, you want to not have, <laughs> you want to reduce the overall amount of particulate and contaminants in the clean room. And the best way to do that is through surface uh, cleaning and disinfection. And then they also have added a monthly application of a sporicidal, which is also a, just honestly a great idea. In fact, this, this really mimics exactly what I do in, in my own clean room, um, that uh, you could actually take that that chart, put maybe a couple other columns in there, and that is literally my cleaning schedule. Um, and of course, you know that environmental sampling to prove that your cleaning schedules and and what you're you're using and how you're doing it. Um, environmental monitoring would be the proof that your processes and procedures for cleaning and disinfecting uh, are actually working. So, you know. I think that uh, they've clearly defined and laid out a, a very good uh, template for the minimum frequencies for cleaning. And of course, uh, you can always go above and beyond this, especially if your environmental monitoring is essentially telling you to do so. If you have uh, various bacteria that continue to show up in one of the same areas uh, month after month, week after week, Maybe you're not using the right thing or the, the right technique or, or, or whatever. Uh, you, it, it, environmental monitoring is meant to give you an idea of the level of control over your clean room that you have. So again, this table eight um, that USP put in the revision, it's a, it's a great little template. So yeah, John, what, what about you? What, uh, what, else did you uh, what else did you have? Yeah, something else I want to talk about, Seth is uh, formulation records. So a lot of people are not <laughs> aware of this, but current 797 actually has very little to say about formulation records. So a lot of it's coming from a community pharmacy background, especially if we did non-sterile compounding or we were doing high-risk sterile compounding, we were used to maintaining um, basically the same kind of records that are spelled out in 795. And years ago, there used to be a linking between 795 and 797. And so it, it made sense to use 795's criterias for master formulation records and compounding records. But um, that was severed, I think, in 2012. And um, going forward, there's been some confusion. Now, it to me, it makes perfect sense to have detailed formulation records for high-risk compounds, or if you're making things in back, any traceability. Um, but it, you know, I know a lot of things like hospitals, it was difficult to keep a formulation record. So if you consider something just like IV admixtures compounding, which depending on the definition of compounding that you use, 
you know, them coming up with a formulation record for every single thing they did that, you know, I'm not saying whether I think it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that they found that overly burdensome. And um, so what we saw was that you know, there really is no requirement current USP for master formulation records. So just to make sure we're all on the same terminology, you know, master formulation record is like the recipe that's used. Compounding record is the documentation of that individual batch. Um, so this version of the chapter, it came out and gave some some uh, stuff around master formulation records. And it said that any any sterile product made in a batch for more than one patient or any compounded sterile product made from non-sterile ingredients would need a master formulation record. So we get some granularity there. And I'd, I'd say that goes with where the industry has kind of been headed over the last few years, where if you're making IV bags and you're following the, the package insert, then there's not necessarily a need to keep that information. Um, but if you're doing you know, what we call high risk today, then it, then it makes perfect sense. And then it defines what is in that master formulation record. Um, now, it does say that a compounding record be created for all uh, compounded sterile products. And it goes through, again, to give the definition of what would be in a compounding record. Um, it does say that the compounding record can come in a lot of different forms. So it says uh, a prescription medication order, a compounding log, or a label could be considered the compounding record as long as it gets all the things in uh, box 9-2, if you're taking a look at that line, 1429 uh, has that on there. So that, you know, I'd say for most of the community compounders out there, this isn't going to have a whole lot of implications. This is stuff you're doing already. Um, but I can tell you, as we work with more and more hospitals, this this type of thing is huge, or even the home infusion uh, businesses uh, tend to have different you know, thoughts about what record keeping should look like. So this could be a, a pretty significant change for some folks. Well, I, I, I think, you know, we, we, based on the time of where we're at and, and where we're aiming with the podcast, um, I'm going to suggest that we call this a wrap mm -hmm. and either we record what we wanted this to sound like and put it out. Or, uh, <laughs> we set up another time and, uh, and maybe when, when Seth's not hanging out at Starbucks and uh, let's see if we can get this to pan out better. What do you guys say? Why don't we promise to the audience out there that we're actually going to do a breakout. We're going to go back to our old method. Again, I apologize that the, the technology, as much as we want to utilize technology and make it wonderful for us, unfortunately, we know that that doesn't always happen. So we're going to circle back with John because as you can see and as you can hear that John Pritchett is an incredibly knowledgeable person. This is what he does. And I have the pleasure of listening to John talk about this stuff at the education workshops. And so I know exactly how knowledgeable he is. So I know everyone would love to have you back, John. And so what we'll do, like I said, we're going to circle back. We're actually going to do some recorded sessions. It'll completely clear up all of this audio. And we'll be able to dissect this chapter a little bit. Because I know that you also sat in at that USP expert committee meeting. What was that? Probably about six weeks or so ago. And that you had some notes and some things that you also wanted to bring up from that too. And so um, we're going to park a little bit and say thank you. Thank you to our audience for joining us here. And uh, hey, we'll circle back. Guys, until we meet again, keep raising the bar.